Good morning, Steve Dale's Pet World on WGN. This is exciting, an opportunity to talk about a very important topic, and that is dog bite prevention. Prevention is the key word there because most dog bites, and I am talking about the overwhelming majority of dog bites, are absolutely preventable. But are we missing something? I mean, the number of dog bites, more or less, we think, is about the same year after year after year. The money we're spending on lawyers keeps going up. That's no surprise. So can we do better? And we'll talk with the president of the American Veterinary Medical Association, Dr. Lori Teller, about that. This story came across my desk. Actually, it was a telephone call from Charlie Propsom, a friend of this radio show and founder of Chicago Friends of Chicago Animal Care and Control, and the operations manager of Chicago Animal Care and Control, Angela Rayburn, is also here. And here's how I want to begin with both you guys before we tell what is a compelling story in so many ways, on so many levels. But but before we get there, uh, Angela, I want to thank you and hope you pass along those thank yous to all of your colleagues at Chicago Animal Care and Control, uh, an organization that I have no clue why sometimes gets a bad rap. I, I will tell you if there is a, and this is the law, not only in Chicago, but most cities across the country, if there's a stray animal, that animal goes to Chicago Animal Care and Control. If someone wants to give up their pet or feels they need to give up their pet, that's where they're going. They're going to Chicago Animal Care and Control. You don't want to see more animals come in. The reverse is true. And we'll talk about one other very important function, which is what this story is all about. But I just want to say thank you, Angela, for the work that you do. Thank you, Steve. Now, for Charlie, I don't know how many years ago it was, Charlie, and you said there needs to be a non-governmental, non-profit arm of Chicago Animal Care and Control. You created Friends of Chicago Animal Care and Control. And I say thank you to you as well for all the work that you have done, mostly quiet work, you and the organization, including this after-hours veterinary care that you created and helped to fund. And I thank you for that work. And we'll talk about what the after-hours is in a minute, but thank you very much as well. You're welcome, Steve. It's been a pleasure. Well, not always, but you've done it. (laughs) True. (laughs) Yes. All right. Now, here's what happened. Charlie, I pick up my phone. Charlie's on the other end of the phone. And she told me about, I think it was two days prior to the call, whatever day you called me, but I think it was April 25th, that uh, in the Roseland neighborhood, there was a dog that was beaten by a hammer. And animal. this happened late at night, Charlie, and I want you to pick it up from there because Animal Care and Control has veterinarians, but not on staff at like midnight. So I'll let you pick it up from there. Okay. Well, the shelter does, uh, I should say the organization, Animal Care and Control, does investigate cruelty cases and takes animals on whenever they happen. But in order to make their veterinary service also at the shelter um, more efficient, they decided to run the vet office from 11 o'clock in the morning until 7 p.m. at night. And that meant that 
animal control officers would still be on the street until about 10, 10, 30, 11 at night, but would be no help at the shelter for animals that were hit by cars or in some other way in need of medical help. And that's when friends stepped up and said, we'll come up with a program. We called it very lengthy, the After Hours Crisis Care Program, Mm -hmm. and we will make sure that any animals who need medical care that are taken in after hours, after the veterinarians have left for the day, that they get private veterinary care at an emergency center somewhere in the city. So that was the beginning of the program. Um, and that was that started about three years ago, and we tend to service about maybe 75 animals, both cats and dogs, um, a year. And the program is costly. We depend on our donors to come through with the funding to um, do this. We get discounts, but they're you know they don't do the whole job. No, of so, course not. And the city doesn't fund for this. So no, you raise, no. you've managed to raise money to take care of dogs like the one we're talking about, Angela. So let's talk about this particular dog. What happened? So we got a call. It's called a pet wellness call, and in that, it, it listed kind of descriptive information as to the injuries that were witnessed by the person that took the dog in. So when we got that call, we sent out two officers late at night to go check on the dog, and that's when um, they were able to apprehend the dog from the, from the neighbor that was a concerned citizen um, and gather enough information to locate the owner and who was responsible for the treatment of the animal and the severe injury to the animal's It was not only the head, um, but it was also uh, the back legs as well. Yeah. Uh, so the dog was, was I correct in saying, beaten by a hammer? I've seen the images, and you know what? You don't need to be a detective to say, wow, this is incredible, because, and I posted some of these images, by the way, on my website, that's stevedale.tv. You could see the hammer, you know, the part of the hammer, I don't know, names of for hammers. The that, uh, thank you. So you could actually see that embedded the circle of the head of the hammer embedded in the dog. It was truly shocking. Yeah, yeah. So, Angela, the dog then goes to a emergency care veterinary clinic. So I, I have two questions to ask you, or two lines of questioning. One is about, okay, what happened with the dog? But also talk to me about the person who did this. Sure. So our staff was really... We did a really great job in locating the owner's information and and was able to actually connect with the owner um, at the location of incident and then contact the police. And at that point, within five minutes, the police came and they ended up arresting the owner um, slash offender at the same time. So at that time, I mean, within this all happened about within an hour. Uh, we we were able to apprehend the dog, get get her to safety, but also the owner was arrested and went to the district immediately. Now, um, what was he arrested for? What were the charges? So he was arrested for aggravated animal cruelty, which is a felony charge. But, now, now, so uh, I'm I'm interrupting you because I want to make a yep. point of this. So often, 
First of all, congratulations to Animal Care and Control for pursuing this. Congratulations for the Chicago Police Department to take it seriously and then for charges to actually occur that were appropriate charges. When this happens, and I don't know how many of the particulars you're allowed to tell me about, uh, but you'll tell me. So when this happens, statistically, there were previous incidents to uh, probably the same dog. Statistically, though, someone in that household may be abused as well. Can you tell me about what you know about this, or is that still under wraps? So um, that that is an absolutely true statement. We, not we just as Chicago, but generally speaking, violence towards animals also relates to previous violent experiences, either to other people, to, you know, domestic partners, to animals, to children, to the elderly. It's all connected. So it's it's called the link, and it's very significant. So um, at this point, we I don't have any evidence that this offender had any link to anything, but it's, I mean, at any point, it's, you know, we don't know his history at this point, but um, we just know the fact that the dog was, was severely injured. So, um, you know, it would it surprise me to hear if other people uh, had come forward and said, yeah, this, this man's just an aggressive man, you know, to people as well. Um, because the link is is definitely real in many, many animal cases. Well, absolutely, that is true. And you don't know this, Angela. Charlie, you may or may not know this. I happen to serve on the National Link Coalition. So I'm oh. very much aware yes. of, of, of this in great detail and all the science behind it. So the good news is if he didn't commit historically this individual violence to others, in his family, uh, or including animals, then odds are he will have he would have done so. So by catching this early and taking it seriously, you could even be theoretically saving a human life as well as further suffering for this individual animal. I want to talk about this dog, why you named the dog, the name that you came up with for this dog, and I want to hear how the dog is doing now. We'll hear more about Friends of Chicago Animal Care and Control, which we don't hear enough about, and we will do that when we come back on WGN. Well, as any good reporter likes to be the first to report, I'm happy to be the first to talk about this, but uh, really not happy to talk about this kind of thing, which happens all too often. We're talking about a dog that was beaten How is that dog doing today? We'll find out. Uh, Angela Rayburn is the operations manager of Chicago Animal Care and Control and the president and founder of the Friends of Chicago Animal Care and Control, Charlie Propsom, is here. Uh, Charlie, I remember having you on the radio when you made the announcement, we're beginning a nonprofit called Friends of Chicago Animal Care and Control, which means that either you've been around too long or I have, or maybe we both have. I don't know. But, We're both geezers. <laughs> no, don't. Hey, don't throw me under the bus. Well, the work that Chicago, the Friends of Chicago Animal Care and Control has done, uh, many people just simply don't know about. And how you manage to raise money for this is incredible because you have some limitations because for, uh, Chicago Animal Care and Control is a government agency. And, and you're quite incredible for the, 
the work that you have done. So, as I mentioned earlier, simply thank you for that. You called to tell me about this dog, and then you happened to mention Charlie. I said, well, was the dog given a name? And tell me about that. It's it's interesting, Steve. This dog was badly, badly damaged. She was beaten on the head with the hammer, and not only that, but whacked across her back with a belt. There was hitting with a stick, all the rest of this. And the animal control officers had to get her um, into the truck and, you know, to pick her up, rescue her from the situation. And after an animal has been treated this severely, they're not in a terribly good mood. But this this dog, and she's a biggie, she's over 40 pounds, um, she was sweet as pie. And... The owner only referred to her as dog, and so Jeez. they didn't know her name, but the officers, the animal control officers, named her Sweetie. That is wonderful. And, you know, Angela, I think, again, this is something the public just isn't aware of, or maybe some of these folks actually have a negative image, and that is animal control officers. Um, this is an example, and this happens all the time of heroism, really, in my view, of what animal care, animal control officers do, ACOs do all the time. Can you talk about that? Yeah, I think that's a great point to bring up. So we, I think years ago, there's a an image of animal control officers as being the bad guys, the ones capturing dogs and writing tickets. We're really trying to be more um, support-based and service-based now and get out in the community, hear what the community has to say, what are their needs, we're trying to address those needs so we don't have to take animals from people. We don't have strays roaming the neighborhoods to see what is it that the community needs from us in order for animals and people to live comfortably together, whether it's a pet, whether it's outdoor cat they feed, um, you know, and just support the community. So we're really, we're really pushing that um, and having our officers go to different events and talk to people and see, see what they do and be able to present themselves as a support system instead of an enforcement aspect. Angela, we only have about two minutes left. I don't know what happened to the time, but tell me how Sweetie is doing today. So Sweetie uh, is lucky enough because of Charlie's miracles that she pulled. She could not have found a better foster than a vet that was at the animal hospital she went to. So I could not have thought of anyone better to take on the care for this dog other than where she is now. So she's in recovery. The case uh, is still going to go on, and we're going to push forward with the charges. We have a great representative through the state's attorney's office. Um, So all of that is to come, but we're very excited and pleased that, first of all, Sweetie made it, but secondly, the owner is is going to be prosecuted for his crimes. Uh, Is Sweetie ultimately going to be adopted, do you think? Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely, she says. Now, here's my question for you, Charlie. Sweetie's care needs to be paid for. And even if you have funds to do that, and it's ongoing, uh, she's doing well, I guess, but ongoing care for a while still. uh, There's there's another dog and another dog and another dog who will ultimately come along. How can people help? They can... Donate to Friends of Chicago Animal Care and Control. That is the, the most important thing. Um, we have uh, a website, fcacc.org, 
and you can donate there. You can give me a call. <laughs> no, no, no. Oh, you, we you we don't want to give you. No, 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 no. F-C-A-C-C dot org to donate. And uh, it's, it's, uh, it's tax season, right? So this is the time of year that's perfect to do it because you are a nonprofit and therefore... Unofficial, unofficial advice is you could write that uh, donation off on your taxes. Uh, Charlie, thank you so much for saving not only this dog. You've handed, had a hand in more dogs than any of us can count. And Angela, I thank you again and all of your colleagues at Animal Care and Control. Uh, unheralded work that you do, all of you, on a daily basis. Thank you both very much. Thank, thank you, Steve, for getting the word out. Okay, that's FCACC.org, as in Friends of Chicago Animal Care and Control. Thank you, guys. Take care. Thank you. <laughs> Choo! Well, you know, we have our allergies, and so do our pets. And Dr. Adam Chrisman will be here. It's that time of year for us, but also our pets. So here's the thing. Most people think, okay, if the dog or cat has an allergy, it's got to be the food. Well... It oftentimes is the food, but most often is not. What do you think the number one allergy for dogs for dogs happens to be? Hmm. Flea allergy dermatitis. Now, that's not necessarily Chicago. So in Chicago, probably it's inhalant allergies. But what does that mean? They're allergic to the same ragweed, mold, pollen, dust, all those things that we're allergic to. Here's a really interesting fact, a little tidbit. Maybe we'll talk to Dr. Chrisman about this next week, too. There are not a lot, there are a lot of people allergic to cats. There are some people, I mean, some cats, some cats actually allergic to people. All that next week on WGN. Welcome to day one of Dog Bite Prevention Week. It goes through, well, the rest of the week, and I'm always honored when I talk with the president, a president, of the American Veterinary Medical Association, Dr. Lori Teller. Welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me. You know, I think dog bite prevention is something that we don't talk about often enough. And here's the conundrum. There are more dogs which is a great thing. There are more dogs in America right now at this very moment. We can thank, in part, the pandemic for that. So here's what's been happening. Uh, The number of dogs in America for years has been steadily going up, a a consistent pace, increasing some single percentage point year after year after year. Then the pandemic hit, and the number of dogs skyrocketed, and number of cats and other pets as well, in America, and greatly all over the world. So that is a good thing in of itself, but the number of dog bites has continued to stay more or less about the same, maybe has gone up a little bit. What we do know is insurance claims have gone up, and what we know is the money paid out have gone up. In part, that's because of lawyers, I think, not necessarily severity of dog bites, but nevertheless... They're not, we're not, I don't think, and you'll tell me what you think, we're not doing enough to move the needle. So I'd like your comment on that. Yes, we definitely uh, can always do more to prevent dog bites. We know that there are 4.5 million people bitten by dogs each year in the U.S., and more than 800 
800,000 of those require medical attention. So that's a lot of dog bites, yeah. um, a, lot of, a lot of insurance claims, as you brought out. And, of course, we hate to see anybody ever get bit by a dog. And the repercussions are significant. I mean, if you're bitten by it, first of all, let me back up a step. Most dog bites, talk about this a little bit as well, because I think it's an important point. Most dog bites happen to children, correct? Yes, children under the age of five. Mm-hmm. Um, partly because they're small, so they're at dog size. Um, so their bites tend to be more severe as well, because it can be face and limbs and things like that. And children often don't know how to safely approach or pet a dog or when to even not go near a dog. And so a lot of that is on us as adults, parents, teachers, caretakers to help teach children how to best interact with pets and how to ask before petting and how to uh, avoid getting bit. And one reason why we don't know exactly how many dog bites there are is, again, statistically, most dog bites happen within families. That much we do know. But if they happen within families, we also know that they're not always reported, correct? Correct. Correct. So so we don't even know exactly what those numbers are. So would you agree with this basic premise that most dog bites can be prevented? Oh, yes. I completely agree with that. All right. So let's talk about some things that, and this again is something that, and congratulations to the American Veterinary Medical Association, because I know that for years, the AVMA has had a focus on this issue to decrease the number of dog bites. And some number of years ago created Dog Bite Prevention Week, which is right now as it happens. So what are some things that people can do, ordinary folks, to prevent dog bites? Well, first, recognize what may trigger a dog to bite. So don't scare or startle a dog. Uh, Try to avoid awakening a sleeping dog. If your dog is eating, uh, chewing on a treat, don't approach it and make it feel threatened like you're going to take it away because dogs can be protective of their things, whether that's food or a toy or sometimes their people uh, or if they have puppies, those kinds of things. So well, I, be aware of I, what a dog may be protecting. Okay, so I want, I'm interrupting you because I want to make a point of something you're saying. Some people suggest, well, it's my house. I pay the mortgage. I will take the food away from the dog if I want to or take whatever it is that the dog values at that time away from the dog. And another, was Grandma right when Grandma said... Or great-grandma said, let sleeping dogs lie. Same idea here. Should we be respecting dogs' property, so to speak, and space maybe more than we do and not having the attitude that I just suggest? Well, I'm never going to argue with grandma. Um, I think (laughs) grandma was absolutely right. Uh, Let's let sleeping dogs lie. As far as taking things away from a dog, this is where obedience training becomes so important, and it's another way that we can help prevent dog bites because a dog can learn commands, including leave it or drop it. So if you do need to take something away from a dog, 
your risk of getting injured is going to be significantly less. So, of course, we don't really have a reason to take a dog's food away, but a dog may get into something that is potentially harmful, mm-hmm. and we want to be able to prevent our dog from being harmed by that, but we also don't want somebody to get bit trying to remove that. So obedience, um, I can't overstate the importance of, of having a well-trained dog, including drop it or leave it, and that is how you can get the food, the treat, the toy, or the potentially harmful item away from your dog and everybody is safe. Yeah, I can't agree with you more, by the way. You put that so very well. So you're walking down the street and uh, someone just dropped a turkey leg or something. I don't know. <laughs> I, I, it happens. And, 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 and your dog scarfs it up or wants to. And you say, drop it. And hopefully, to your point, your dog will listen to that cue, but it's a turkey leg. And the dog's saying, I'm, I'm going to listen, but not to not this time. So you have to actually put your hand in the dog's mouth to remove it, or you could have a dog that chokes on this. You need to do that for safety reasons. Or maybe your dog is sniffing rat poison, and you don't want your dog to go any further than you want to take it out of the way. Whatever it is, you need to have your dog be trained to understand that it's okay if my hand goes into your mouth. Is that the essence of what you're saying? Uh, Great. If you cannot teach your dog, leave it or drop it, then also having your dog understand that it's okay to, to put your hand in its mouth. This becomes important if you're trying to medicate your dog or brush your dog's teeth. All of those things involve having your hand um, in or near your dog's mouth, which, again, goes back to training. Um, So having your dog well-trained and responsive to you and comfortable around you can do a lot to prevent you from getting bit. And then, of course, we have to be aware, especially if you're walking down the street, um, if strangers approach your dog, so having your dog well-socialized in unusual or not normal circumstances can also be huge. So your pet should be comfortable being greeted by somebody that he or she does not know Mm -hmm. uh, how to respond to that. And of course, if your dog is fearful around strangers, then you as a responsible owner need to let that person know, please don't approach my dog. Um, He's nervous and I don't want him to hurt or bite you. All right. That's where I want to pick it up when we come back. What has been tried and has kind of worked or not worked? And we'll talk about that, which has to do with what you just said. We're talking with Dr. Lori Teller, who happens to be the president of the American Veterinary Medical Association. We're talking about dog bite prevention. This is Dog Bite Prevention Week, and we'll be right back. Talking with Dr. Lori Teller, who happens to be the president of the American Veterinary Medical Association, who is out there talking about dog bite prevention. This is Dog Bite Prevention Week. And historically, there have been two major initiatives. And I'm old enough to remember, but barely, because these ideas have been around now for a while. One, and the American Veterinary Medical Association was involved in this, I believe, as I've done a bit of research on this, but this is before your time or my time, when the AVMA said people need to understand that dog socialization is important. It was before the world of specialized veterinary behaviorists, but those who were interested in behavior at the time did research, 
to support this notion of the importance having to do with a link that is real between dog bites and socialization. Can you explain what I'm talking about? You alluded to it just a little bit before we broke for the commercials. Yes, happy to. So it's important for our dogs to be comfortable in a variety of situations and with a variety of people. So adults, children, teenagers, older people, younger people, people who may have um, a disability, such as they're walking with a cane or a walker or in a wheelchair, people who wear hats and may not wear hats, all of those things. People, uh, dogs need to be comfortable with that. They need to be comfortable with loud noises. Uh, so certainly small children, if you're walking past a park and children are out having a great time and they're screeching and laughing out loud, all of those kinds of noises are important. Uh, this goes back to even, uh, you know, not being scared of vacuum cleaners and thunder, but just a variety of situations. So a park, a walk around the neighborhood, of course, going to the veterinarian's office. Mm. We want our, our dogs to be comfortable coming in to see us. Um, so that's a part of socialization, and many veterinarians offer um, just welcome visits where the where you bring your dog in, it gets a treat from somebody at the counter or from the veterinarian or a technician, and then it leaves. So it's a happy visit, and nothing bad happened. So all of those situations, the groomer, the groomer appreciates that as well. Um, lots of dogs get nervous at the groomer. Sure. So socializing your pet to a variety of people in environments and situations can do a lot to lessen things that may trigger a dog to bite. All right. And this, by the way, can be done at any age. So you can adopt a 12-year-old dog, and you can maybe not change the dog's demeanor completely, but you can make changes. And certainly in a puppy, and ideally, the time to do all of this is when the puppy is a puppy. Am I, am I right? You are correct. Ideally, before the puppy is about 16 weeks mm-hmm. of age. And while socialization is everything you put so well, what we find now, by the way, are people are kind of overdoing it. So the good news is people are listening to us. They want to socialize their dog. They're exposing their dog, but they're taking their dog places where it's a bit too much for a young puppy. Uh, A shopping center where the grocery carts are going clang, 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 and people are screaming, I want that because that's on sale or whatever. And, And it's a bit too much. For, or take, I've seen this in Chicago where we live, taking uh, dogs under the train tracks. And those trains are awfully loud. I'm talking about the red line or the broad line and green line and blue line. I mean, Chicagoans know exactly what I'm talking about. And taking the dog right under there and hear the trains rattle, it's like they do more than rattle. And that's terrifying to people in some cases, let alone yeah. dogs, you know. So. That's not the way to do it. Would you agree that a positive training class yes. is, is the right way to go? Completely agree. It, it needs to be a positive experience, and you don't have to immerse your dog in every experience every time. Uh, and you need to work up to these things. So, you know, start with getting your your puppy acclimated to family members and close friends and then to things around the neighborhood and the dog park. In places where your pet will regularly be going, um, it's, it's not likely that your dog is going to spend a lot of time under train tracks or, or things like that. 
Um, but things where it is going to be typical for right. your pet right. now, to be out and about. Now, yeah. the other thing that was done, the other initiative is, uh, and it was a national initiative, and it's a great idea. People should still do this. And that say, can I pet your dog? Uh, so all of that is is socialization and the idea of, and it was like a campaign at one point decades ago, can I pet your dog? did, I'm sure, make an impact. But is it continuing to? I think we need to do one better. And that, Dr. Teller, I'm curious about how you feel about this, is, okay, of course, ask, can I pet your dog? But ask the dog as well to educate people about what dogs are always telling us. So you go up to someone who says, oh, my dog's friendly. I, you, of course you could pet my dog. And in fact, the dog is just standing stiffly looking the other way. It's not growling. It's not barking. It's, it's, the tail may not even be down. It might be. Uh, and on and on and on. The, the, the lip licking and other signs of fear, anxiety, and stress are not there. But the dog is just, but that dog is still saying, don't pet me right now for whatever reason. Maybe the dog is hurting. Maybe the dog is just focused on something else and petting the dog would surprise the dog and therefore startle dogs sometimes do things we don't want to have done quickly because we're, I saved this way to the end. But do you think what I'm suggesting with enough education to pet parents who then can educate children at some point about what the dog is saying because dogs are always telling us something. Yes, I, I agree completely. First, you do need to ask the owner, yes. can I pet your dog? And if the owner says yes, then completely agree that the dog has to want to, to be petted and be receptive to that. And so once you have permission from the dog's owner, then approaching the dog typically sideways and not making eye contact and then letting the dog approach you if it wants wants to have contact with you. And when the dog does that, then you can reach out and start petting the dog. Um, so you are correct. It, it, it's definitely a, a two-step deal. First, the owner has to tell you the dog is friendly and most likely won't bite you, um, but then the dog also has to be in the mood to want to to get attention and receive the pets. Well, I, I think you're right. And if you do ask, dogs do tell. I wish we had more time to talk about all this. I love talking to you, Dr. Lori Teller, president of the American Veterinary Medical Association, to learn more about all of what we're talking about, avma.org. Dr. Teller, always thank you. Thank you. This is historic For the first time in 31 years, America's top dog has changed. It is no longer anymore the Labrador Retriever. What do you think the number one breed in America is right now? It is the French Bulldog. And and to me, I have some issues with that. So it's great. I mean, I'm not, I'm going to hear from French Bulldog owners, I am sure. Listen, they're fun dogs. If they, if, if, there was a dog breed that can win an award for the best comedian, it would be maybe the French Bulldog. I, I, I do believe dogs have a sense of humor, and I do believe 
They, in particular, have a great sense of humor. They're a fun, fun dog. Having said that, they can be can be an expensive, expensive dog, anywhere from three thousand to over ten thousand dollars. It's supply and demand. It is also that they're so they're one of the breeds. Pet stores say, "Oh, we'll sell this dog. It's a French bulldog. It may be a French bulldog. It may not be a purebred French bull. Who knows what that French bulldog can be?" Because we know pet store dogs they come from puppy mills and. Breeders that are not so responsible. And responsible breeders, that's the thing here, because these dogs, uh, they're brachiocephalic dogs, which means they have that kind of obstructive airway because of their pushed-in faces. And there is something called brachiocephalic obstructive airway syndrome, which is something that's now been identified that they and bulldogs, bulldogs are number six, by the way, on the AKC list, they have, or can have anyway, and... There's no, there is a test to determine, but a pet store is not going to do that, you know. So you don't want to buy any dog, of course, through a pet store, particularly not a French bulldog, uh, in part because of the expense. But the other reason, why, by the way, why they're so expensive is because they can't give birth naturally. They have to have a cesarean because the heads are so darn incredibly big. So I don't know. It's kind of a mixed blessing that they are number one on that list. For more about the top breeds, check out my website, stevedale.tv. We'll talk to you next week, bright and early, on WGN.